Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hey everybody, welcome to a new episode of Undying Light. I am your host Alex, and we are again back at it in the book of Revelation, closing out chapter 16 today, and so that means after today's episode, we have six weeks left, six episodes, and we will cover uh, the final two parts of our seven-part series uh, as we kind of have broken the book of Revelation out into seven sections. Uh, we'll, we'll do a wrap up on the final episode and kind of go back over some of those highlights. Uh, a little bit of an announcement as we progress into the end of this very long series uh, that should put us right at the end of August, which would make this a good year long series. We did take December off, did a four week little series on uh, the prophecies of Christ. Other than that, we've been in this for 11 months, working through all of these different uh, pieces of scripture. We've gone through the New Testament and Paul's letters, and then we looked at Peter and Jude, and now the book of Revelation. We also looked at the Old Testament. And so we've spent a considerable amount of time looking at this just very broad topic of uh, of, uh, eschatology. And it still doesn't seem to crack the surface of this vast topic. There are so many more nuances and levels that we can dig into um, and various beliefs and things like that. So we we have our hands full and we've had them full for a number of months, but we are getting close to the end of it. And we are going to wrap up on, I believe August 20th will be our last episode in this series. Now, and I, I have kind of a planned... Uh, surprise, I'm going to go ahead and announce it now. I'm not going to give names yet, but I'm going to have some people join me uh, for the 27th of August for that episode. We will have a panel discussion. We're going to talk about uh, all of these different views of eschatology. We're going to look at just kind of this series in general, some of the high points, low points, uh, things that really, you know, stuck out to people. Um, I've got uh, a particular group up on 
tap already they're interested in joining me i'm going to try to get one or two other people as well i kind of want a big panel and just really go through uh this big discussion so it could be a very long episode not going to pin it to any particular time frame but we will dig into it for sure now it's crazy to think it's only july 6 as i record this episode and we still have you know a few more days before this episode will air on the 9th and then you know i was just planning this out there's you know a couple fridays left here in the month of july and then we're moving on to august already and it's crazy how fast the year moves so as things unfold we will conclude this wonderful series and move on to the next one and we've got a lot of things coming down the chute in this realm after revelation so we will um dig into some new series we'll get more details on that as the time moves on uh, i have a couple shows planned for various topics coming up on our bonus episode tuesdays when we drop those i am considering uh an episode that will be on the creeds and uh that will come out uh sometime in august i have a particular person lined up for that we will discuss the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, and then Athanasian Creed. And so we'll look at how the formations of these come together, why they're important, and how do we utilize them in today's church. So that is something that we will be looking at. Uh, that'll kind of be another little uh, notch in the whole series on the Lutheran theology, because Lutherans uh, look to those as their kind of foundational creeds uh, that they recite and uh, the truth that they exhibit is what the Lutherans exhibit as themselves. So we will spend some time digging into those and their history and what that all means. Um, but like I said, that's probably coming sometime in August when we can get down and record it. And other than that, I got a couple other things up my sleeve and still working through trying to get some of those details hammered out and get uh, get shows produced for you, which we haven't missed a beat. We've been dropping shows every Friday since... Uh, I picked up the mic on this show by myself, and we have continued to produce content week after week. And I, I, I love the fact I was talking to some people today. Uh, I was curious how many people have actually listened to all of this entire series. Now, I know a lot of people listen to the Attribute series. That was a big series that we did. And there were a lot of listens on some of those episodes. The the eschatology series has seemed to be, you know, a little less, but I think because of the, the amount of content that is delivered. And so I'm, I would venture to say that over time, people will listen to the series more, uh, probably in small segments, they'll listen to some of the, the old Testament stuff and then maybe move to the new Testament, however that works out for them. But, uh, I had one person that said that they had actually listened to all of the episodes and just finished up Friday's episode yesterday. And so I was, pretty impressed i said i have one loyal follower <laughs> but that is it is a, is it a monumental task to get through this content because it is tough and difficult and i try to make it as seamless for for people as possible because of the amount of work and knowledge that i've put in and brought forward and hopes to help people understand kind of these different views within the sphere of eschatology and um, I want to hopefully uh, exhibit as much of an unbiased position as possible, but I do know that some of my uh, 
uh, views really do shine in some of these texts because it just makes me really cringe when I hear hyper-dispensationalism, uh, the dispensationalist people clinging to a particular passage when there's uh, other ways to interpret and handle things. But that aside, we're moving on. Today we'll be in the book of Revelation again, chapter 16 again, and we are going to be looking at the rest of the bulls that God is pouring out, and we'll hopefully clarify some things that we were talking about last week in respect to how some of these bulls um, are difficult to really find an interpretation for in this time frame. So we're going to look at uh, hopefully adding some clar clarification to the first three bulls and uh, and how that really impacts the church through the church age and how can we understand this particular um, portion of you know the book of revelation so before we get into the content just a few quick reminders if i can so with all content that we deliver and all the shows that we do i always want to remind everybody we are a listener supported show and your contributions to this are greatly appreciated and there are a few ways that you can actually become a part of this family uh, one is through the acast platform that the show is hosted on you can actually give uh, a donation or um, become a monthly subscriber on that or you can join us on patreon and for as little as a dollar a month you can get up into all of the extra excursions that we do and patreon is where most of our supporters go because i can post all of our content there we have some other ways to deliver things but patreon is where it mostly resides so we do a Galatians study every Friday. We're going through the book of Galatians right now. I give a commentary on that. And then we have a Bible study that we do on a bi-weekly basis. And uh, they get sermon notes, at access to any and all things that I'm doing within the ministry. They get updates and chats with me. And so all of these extra little amenities, you get that for as little as a dollar a month. And that helps go to take care of the show costs and all the all the sorts that go into podcasting. And I am greatly appreciative of all of our supporters. We have a great group of individuals who have come alongside me and have helped move this ministry forward into the coming years. And I am so blessed to get to know each and every one of them. So like I said, for as little as a dollar a month, you can join us there and help pay for and help contribute to and become a part of this wonderful and great community that we are or organizing within the name of Christ and to deliver and teach Christ to the world. For me, it's about the community. I, you know, that's why I set the tiers to a dollar. I don't sit here and ask you to donate five or ten dollars to get more content. My content is free essentially to all the people who join us. So for as little as a dollar a month, you get in on that. The other thing I like to talk about is the logo software. Again, I'm using it on my screen. It's got all my stuff. I've got my study Bibles open. I've got my commentaries open and my uh, regular ESV Bible open as I'm going to be reading through some of this content today for you and hopes to help educate and, and teach you and to bring clarification on some of these topics. And Logos has been instrumental to that for me. I have had so much, I've seen so much growth in my own personal life because I've been able to have Logos in my hand on my phone and I can have it on my PC anywhere I'm at. 
gives me access to my entire digital library and I can look at commentaries, I can look at study Bibles and I get everything right here in one clean piece of software. So logos.com forward slash undying light, get yourself a copy. You get a discount and some free books when you sign up and get a package that is logos.com forward slash undying light and get yourself this wonderful Bible software. And it's not just for pastors and theologians. It's for all people. I mean, if you're just a, if you're a mom at home teaching kids, this is a great app for you to get, have all your resources in one nice home. If you're a single man traveling and learning about the word of God, this is a great app to have on your phone to be able to get all of your resources. It covers every person, every walk of life. There are plans and packages designed for just about anybody and everybody. And you can even customize your plans and buy the books that you want and add them as you go along in your, in your walk. It is wonderful. I love using logos. The other little thing I don't really talk too much anymore on, it's the T-shirts and, and other merchandise. You can get that Undying Light gear if you want to help support us there. You can buy a shirt. I'll customize quotes if you want or put a new Bible verse on the back if you want it. Whatever you need, just DM me on Instagram, reformed underscore lifestyle, and we'll make that happen. We're on Bonfire. That is the website that you can order the, the merchandise from. There's hats and mugs and bags and shirts, sweatshirts, and uh, all the sorts. So get yourself some Undying Light gear and share the word of God with the world. So that is really all of it. Um, I do want to talk a little bit about something really quick on my Instagram page. And I think I'm going to start doing this uh, every so often on Tuesdays during our bonus show. So it affects both the podcast and the social media account. Uh, one of the things I feel to kind of really just convicted to do is take this charge on helping educate uh, men to be men. We're making men out of boys and we are taking on the world and all of the demo, all the stereotypes and we're taking on this demasculinization of men and we are going to counter and teach um, these boys how to become men and we will be doing so through various series of posts i'll probably do some podcast episodes on it so it'll be a little bit more raw and you know worldly if you would centered but it is going to keep us rooted in god's word but what I'm trying to get at with this is how can we stand as biblical men within the, the crust of the world? And so it'll be a lot of works-based action, things that we need to be doing in order to really close this gap of knowledge and essentially just laziness that has swept over uh, our generations. So that's going to be something you'll be seeing me posting more of on social media and we'll be talking about that on Tuesdays as well. I'll probably bring some guests in and talk about that as well because it is important to me that we act like men. Paul makes that call in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 to the church in Corinth. He calls calls them in straight up act like men, stand firm in the faith and act like men. And we frankly have a generation where we have a bunch of soft boys running around acting like men, but they're not true, truly biblically acting like men. And so they're playing this uh, distorted role where they are essentially doing more damage to themselves and their families and to the next generation of kids that they're trying to raise. And so my premise is going to be focusing on helping um, bring some light into that in whatever fashion I can. 
I know there's plenty of pages and stuff out there that do, you know, these types of things and they do it really from a worldly sense, but I really want to try and make this, you know, in, as God centered and Christ centered as possible. And it will be a lot of works based action. It will be picking up your cross and living that out daily, spending time in prayer, spending time in family devotion, spending time with your kids and your family, stop being lazy those types of things that we will be tackling on all of these particular episodes and uh, social media posts. So that's kind of the, the future of my page, if you would, and things that I'm looking and working on um, in the coming months. And I hope that at some point in, in or around August, uh, we will be able to kind of kick off maybe doing a bi-weekly Tuesday bonus show on that topic. So Ladies and gentlemen, we got a lot on our plate. We are going to be cruising through these last eight verses in chapter 16. And so let's get to it without wasting any more time. So this is what John writes. He says, The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had, who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. Now, I do want to quickly point here really quick. This particular verse here, 11, um, their pain and sores, that's a throwback to one of the bulls earlier in the chapter that they had painful uh, sores that came upon them back in verse two. So please keep that in your mind. We'll touch base on that shortly. Uh, the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the king from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. For they were demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God, the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled at them in the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh bull. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And there was a flash of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, such as had never been seen since man was on the earth. And so, so great was the earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of wine of the fury of his wrath and every island fled away and no mountains would be found and great hailstorms about 100 pounds each fell from heaven on people and they cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe all right there we go so here we are verses 8 through 16 we have or well um I'm sorry, verses 8 through 21 is kind of the crux of this particular show. So we have essentially two parts in this episode we're going to look at. We're going to look at uh, the fourth, fifth, and sixth bull that encompasses verses 8 through 16. And then the 17 through 21 is the end. 
This is the end of the world, the end of worldly society, the end of sin, and the end of the gospel opportunity. This is it. These last few verses, the seventh bull here, this is the end of what we know earth to be. Before we get there, though, we have these fourth and fifth bulls we're going to examine. We have our sixth bull, the Battle of Armageddon, that is here, and then we will see uh, how that unfolds for us. So, as we have studied Revelation's visions here of the seven seals, trumpets, and bulls, we've noted that they generally refer to God's judgments taking place throughout the church, church age. The six in each of these series, however, refers to events shortly before the end of the age. The seventh brings us to the return of Christ. In considering the fourth and fifth bowls of wrath, therefore, we should see them as characterizing the world's ungodly response through the age as it leads up to the, co the climactic final events. And so... We've talked about this when we when we examined the trumpet blast. We talked about it when we looked at the seals being broken. These all coincide with each other in various elements, and they represent or uh, depict something coming out of uh, Satan's schemes through the church age, and we will actually see these um, unfold through history. And then each time we get to the sixth, uh, seal, trumpet, or bowl, then we see how these events are lining right up close to the end of times, and then the seventh of each of those is the end of it. It is Christ's return and his calling his saints to him. So we've talked about that numerous times, how that helps us to understand how these events happen. They do not happen, you know, the seals in their own time frame, and then we move to the trumpets, and then we move to the bowls. You know, they happen concurrently throughout the church age, and they're, you know, essentially already being poured out. The only thing left, is basically, we could say, is the seventh of each of these, which is the return of Christ. And here we can also say maybe the sixth bowl hasn't been poured out yet because we don't have the bat. We haven't had the Battle of Armageddon yet, and so that's something that's still to be on the horizon. But let us get to that topic because it'll help us to understand what in the world is happening there. So this fourth bowl that we read about is poured out on the sun, and it is to make the sun scorch people with fire. This key here to the bowl is to note that it is the opposite of what the Bible promises to faithful people. If we go back and look at Psalm 121, verses 5 and 6, it says that the Lord is your keeper, the Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. Similarly, in Revelation 7, 16, promise that the redeemed shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. But here... The Lord is doing exactly the opposite in judging the sinful world. So G.K. Beale writes this. He says, uh, thus observes that the fourth bull symbolizes a covenant judgment. These people are judged that they have altered God's moral laws, usually through idolatry. Now, in his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught that God is kind in making his son rise on the evil and on the good. Matthew 5.45. Yet the time comes when God removes the blessing of life from those who rebel against him. So that is what normally a source of blessing becomes a vehicle of divine judgment. And as this 
as the judgment for sin, the fourth bowl here addresses the situation of Western society today. Our secularist world has deliberately rejected God and tried to bar his influence. As Revelation envisions, we have placed God with the beast in all we have replaced God with the beast of all pervasive government, the false prophet of secular humanism, and the seductions of the harlot Babylon. But God is not actually dethroned or excluded. Instead of hearing the Bible's words of covenant blessing, the Lord bless you and keep you, and the Lord make his face shine upon you, as Numbers 6, 24 and 25 say, sin serving mankind receives God's covenant curse. Paul said that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, Romans 1.18. Notice the present tense of this judgment, which goes on to note how God gives idolaters over to the misery of perverse living. The fourth bull depicts the same judgment by scorching the world with fierce heat from a divinely cursed sun. So in sin, the world becomes harsh and painful. So what is this response then of the sin-corrupted secularism to the misery uh, that results from God's judgment on sin? We hear the answers all the time today as the media figures increasingly blaspheme against God. John writes, they curse the name of God who had power over these plagues. They do not repent or give him glory. And on the same basis, religion, quote-unquote, and Christianity are publicly mangled today. Angry atheists point to world widespread poverty, ignorance, disease, lawlessness, and relationship breakdowns, all of which are rooted in sin, and then curse God for them. Where is this kind of loving God that you Christians speak of, the seculars revile? The answer is that man's own idolatry and sin have turned God's face away in anger. And some Christians today are foolishly tempted to even downplay the reality of God's wrath, seemingly saying that God is just all love. There is no wrath. Never fear. They insist that God would never inflict judgment, deny, or minimize God's sovereignty, and announce God's tolerance of moral ab uh, abominations. In contrast, the Bible is clear in declaring God's furious judgment on the wicked, symbolized in the fourth bowl, by the, sun's, uh, by the sun being made to scorch the earth. America today savagely murders her babies, actively promotes sexual indecency, and legislatively wars against God's created design for mankind. What other biblical explanation can there be for an ensuing collapse of our society but indigent divine judgment? Their argument infuriates the secularists, who will not admit his guilt or the justice of God's wrath, exactly as portrayed in the fourth bull of Revelation 16. So these individuals are crying out for all of this quote-unquote injustice that is happening in the world, and they point their fingers at God saying, if you serve this particular God, then you, you've got to be delusional. You've got to be out of your mind. You, have to, you would have to be crazy to love a God that allows children to die of starvation, to allow people around the world to starve, or to allow them to murder each other, or whatever issue they want to call upon, whatever ju social justice topic that they're trying to drive towards. They are often pointing their fingers to God without any sort of understanding to who God truly is. And I preached 
uh, a sermon this past Sunday on the book of Ephesians. We're going to do the whole book. And we were in chapter one and looking at uh, how Paul is cultivating these spiritual blessings. And I noticed as I was kind of going through my sermon notes and, and kind of writing things down that one of these things that towards the end of his prayer in chapter one, he thanks God for the uh, heart to be illuminated, to, to be highlighted. And he goes on to virtually say that in Christ, our heart are, uh, are given the knowledge and truth of who Christ is. But for those who are outside of Christ, their hearts are left in spiritual darkness. And so it's not a shock to see how you know humanists or secularists or whatever title, atheists, agnostics, whatever you want to give them, they hate God, they hate Christians, and they are perplexed and cannot fathom why we worship a God like this. And reality shows us that all of these things that they're pointing their fingers to as being an example of uh, an unexistent God are just issues rooted in sin. And, uh, you know, for man to be sinful, we commit these acts. And if we look at this particular bowl being poured out, you know, it is an example of how these people are experiencing these, these events throughout the age, not necessarily physical sun scorching them with fire, but they experience, um, these plagues and they experience this, this pain that this world has, but yet they don't turn to God. They continue to, um, live in their sinful nature. So God not only places his curse of judgment on this faithless world, but he also targets leaders of spiritual opposition. The fifth angel is pouring out his bull on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom was plunged into darkness. This judgment is based on the fourth plague of Egypt and the Exodus, when God brought darkness on the realm of Pharaoh. The intent was to disgrace the Egyptian sun god Ra, when, uh, whom Pharaoh had thought was uh, represented. In a similar way, God will shame the satanic dominion behind the governments that oppose the gospel. John's original readers might have considered the darkness to be the chaos that engulfed Rome in the years after the suicide of the evil ruler Nero, which shook the, emperor, the empire's confidence. Uh, G.K. Beale here points out that the world rulers who oppress the saints and foster idolatry may expect to suffer internal rebellion and the removal of political and religious power. Such divinely ordained setbacks cast a shadow on the secular ideologies behind the beast's power. Today, our public figures seem to acknowledge God by speaking of the calamities as, quote-unquote, acts of God. Yet a political leader would be reviled if he suggested the disasters such as hurricanes, tornadoes, terrorist attacks, stock markets, etc., etc., to be divine acts of judgment. Yet these calamities are all well within the scope of the woes described in Revelation, precisely as God's judgment. Although sinful people would not, quote-unquote, repent of their deeds, they still gnawing at their tongues in anguish and curse God. Having their sources of security toppled, whether it's a financial understanding or political or or whatever ideology they are portrayed by john as gnawing their tongues seeking to maintain self-control there is no peace the bible says for the wicked this is what the prophet isaiah says in chapter 57 
The anxiety of sin is especially intense with God, with God's shadow bringing dismay to the dominion of Satan, afflicting the spirits of those who will not forsake their sin and give God the glory he deserves. So that's the fifth and sixth, or the fourth and fifth bowl. Uh, we're going to look at here now the sixth bowl um, being poured out on the river Euphrates. Uh, so while the first five bowls shows God's judgment striking the satanic powers through the church age, the sixth bowl, like the sixth seal and the sixth trumpet, moves us forward into this climactic event preceding Christ's return. The vivid picture uh, of this begins with the angel pouring out his bowl on the great river Euphrates. The waters dried up and it, it prepares the way for the kings from the east. The Euphrates River is the border between the lands that God gave Israel and her enemies beyond it. Similarly, in John's time, the Euphrates was the border between Rome and the dreadful uh, Parinthian Empire. The city of Babylon is located on the Euphrates and the and the Revelation Babylon symbolizes the idolatrous world system. And in the Old Testament, the parting or drying up of waters was an act of God's intervention in order to advance the cause of his people. Here, he's drying up the Euphrates to prepare a way for the kings from the east. And so we get this quick little synopsis here that we are getting very close to the end of time with this particular bull happening, and we see how... Uh, this happens. Now, there are many differing views regarding who the kings of the East are. Most secular or most scholars consider them to symbolize warfare among the world's powers. Uh, this would be an idea if the Parinthian, uh, the Parathians were in view since they were Rome's chief enemies. It is pointed out that Cyrus the Great fulfilled Isaiah's prophecy of the fall of Babylon back in Isaiah 44. Uh, by damming up the Euphrates, using its dry channel as a highway for his troops to attack under the city walls. In, the, in both of these scenarios, the removal of the river uh, obstacle allows one pagan empire to attack another. To the benefit of God's afflicted people, it was Cyrus, after all, who issues the decree restoring the Jewish people to Jerusalem, ending their exile and captivity. But we do need to be reminded that Revelation presents visual symbols, not straightforward narrative uh, of historical events. And this becomes clear when we see Satan's response to the assault of worldly powers. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and in the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. This means that his unholy counterfeit trinity, the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet, signifying Satan the tyrannical rule of the Antichrist and the false teachers in society, and within organized church even, Satan unleashes his uh, a spiritual assault. Demons are called unclean spirits, and they go forth like frogs. This points again to the Exodus when God sent the plague of frogs on Egypt. The frogs penetrated every household, spreading defilement and making mind-numbing sounds. It is both for the corruption and the deception of their slick and slippery speech that the demons are compared to frogs. And so we have these really interesting pictures being painted for us coming out of this particular text, but we can sit here knowing that this is just essentially the time before the return of Christ. This is going to be that moment as we get close to the great and famous Battle of Armageddon, and this final battle here symbolizes the catalytic end of the world. 
This is it. And they assembled them at the place that in the Hebrew is called Armageddon. The meaning of Armageddon is not seriously in doubt. Uh, the Hebrew to which John refers to is Mount uh, Megiddo. And it's uh, Har in the Hebrew word for mount. And uh, Megiddo is a fortress. I'll probably butcher that name. But it's overlooking the plain in the northwest of Jerusalem that hosted great battles in iniquity and is recently as Napoleon and the British Army of World War I. Large armies would amass in the plain of uh, Estrail, uh following the valley of Jezreel to advance from the sea coast into the heartland of Israel into the Jordan River. So some scholars envision a literal battle taking place here uh, in which the armies of the entire earth will be gathered to assault a future Jewish state. This approach does not seem to fit with the symbolic nature of Revelation's visions, though. Moreover, large as the plain around where this Armageddon will happen was for ancient warfare, um, it could not hold even a single large military formation today, much less the combined forces of the world. Moreover, Revelation specifies the symbolism at work in this passage. Chapter 17, which we'll get to next week, states that the reference for the Euphrates River is a symbol of peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And even the name Armageddon is symbolic, since it is not a mountain, but it is a city set on a small mound. Baal writes this, The battles of Israel associated with uh, Megiddo or Armageddon become a typological symbol for the last battle against the saints and Christ, which occurs throughout the earth. And so while this is a symbol, it depicts a very real future event. The Bible gives abundant witness to a final conflict in which the forces of the world would unite under a satanically inspired antichrist and wage war on God's people. Jesus spoke of the deceiving spirits referred to in Revelation 16, verse 14, saying that in the last days, false teachers and false Christs will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead you astray, if possible, even the elect. We talked about that when we went through the Mount of, the Mount of uh, Olives discourse in Matthew 24. Now, Paul foretolds, uh, foretold a great tribulation in the church when many will fall away from their uh, outward profession of faith. He spoke of the man of lawlessness and the man of destruction who opposes and exalts himself, proclaiming himself to be God. And uh, we talked about that when we looked at Second Thessalonians. This Antichrist appears by the activity of Satan with all the power and false signs and wonders and all the wicked deception of those who are perishing. Revelation depicts this final onslaught when, quote-unquote, the beast will make war on the believers of the witnessing church and kill them so that their bodies will lie in the streets of the great city, Revelation 11. Now, let's jump into Revelation 20 really quick. It says that this says the end of the age, Satan will be permitted to deceive the nations one last time. Revelation 20, verse 3 says he will, quote unquote, gather the nations for battle, marching up to the broad plain of the earth and surrounding the camp of the saints of the beloved city. Christ appears at this moment to save his church, mounted on a white war horse in the righteousness he judges and makes war, and from his mouth a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. 
Now, Robert Muntz writes, The great conflict between God and Satan, Christ and the Antichrist, good and evil, which lies beyond the perplexing course of history, will lay will in the end issue the final struggle to which God will emerge victorious and take with him all who have placed their faith in him. This is Armageddon. It is what verse, uh, verse 14 in chapter 16 proclaims, the great day of God the Almighty, to which the scriptures so often looked. When Christ returns to destroy Satan in his evil powers and rescue the church, through the final resurrection and judgment to establish his eternal reign over the rescued and renewed creation that is fully display his glory. And so we get to this wonderful piece of truth, knowing that we finally get to see the, the victorious Christ. And we know that Satan continues to wage war against the unbelievers throughout the church age and will continue to do so until the very end when Christ will come and defeat him. So as we get into the last portion here uh, of the chapter 16 that we're at, we basically are coming right into the end of the world. Uh, this, these final verses uh, will conclude the fifth major section of Revelation. And as we draw closer to the end of the book... We also focus more clearly on the end of history and especially on God's judgment for his enemies. In reading Revelation, Christians may therefore become weary of this unrelenting scenes of divine wrath as God has brought down his enemies one by one. Some readers might even think that God, that John's gospel focus was wavered or uh, has been forgotten. And a more careful attention, however, will reveal that all the bad news of God's wrath on his enemies is organically tied to God's good news for the believers. Uh, looking down or looking ahead here to the upcoming chapters, we can find that God's judgment on Babylon avenged and vid, uh, vindicated the blood of the prophets and the saints. The casting down of the Harriet Babylon proceeds with the arrival of Christ, the glorious bride for the marriage feast of the Lamb. A blood-drenched Jesus who slays his enemies is also the Savior mounted on the white horse who is called Faithful and True. Moving back into the passage as the seventh bull of wrath is poured out, the voice from heaven's throne shouts that thrill the hearts of biblical believers. It is done. Readers familiar with John's gospel inevitably associate the it is done with the passage from Jesus' cry, a victory on the cross, it is finished, after atoning for the sins of the world in John 19.30. After all, John was the writer of both books, and if readers today connect these sayings, it is hard to imagine that John himself would not have done so. Moreover, the loud voice coming out of the temple and from the throne can only be of Christ. We were earlier told that the while the bulls of wrath were being poured out, God uh, only God could be in the sanctuary. The parallel passage uh, has named these judgments the wrath of the Lamb by connecting the cry of the divine judgment to the crucified Christ's call for salvation. We join judgment and salvation as two sides of Christ's double-edged sword. So first, this clear emphasis of these verses is that Christ's return spells the end of the world in its present form. What we know today, done, gone, won't exist. The seventh bulls poured out. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, a great earthquake that has never been seen since man was on the earth. 
these violent phenomena intensify descriptions that we have previously seen about the end of the world, going all the way back to Revelation 6, spoke of this great earthquake and the sky vanishing like a scroll that is being rolled up. Now, this seventh bowl of wrath is thrown into the air, and the physical world is assaulted by lightning, thunder, and an earthquake to end all earthquakes. Now, this isn't merely just an earthquake, but a great earthquake. The prophet Haggai foretold, In a little while I will shake up the heavens and the earth, and the sea and the dry land. As Haggai 2.6 says, the writer of Hebrews explains that this indicates the removal of all things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken will remain. As Hebrews 12 says, uh, so Revelation 16.20 tells us how sweeping is the upheaval of his final great earthquake. Every island fled away, no mountains were to be found. Objects that symbolized permanence, mountains and islands, are swept away in destruction. All the way forward here in Revelation 21.4 says that the former things have passed away. The earth that was corrupted together with mankind in Adam's sin, and the condemnation by its re- is, is condemned by its rejection of God's Son, is shattered in the coming of Christ and the final judgment. Now, some scholars will argue that the present world is removed in order to be replaced by a completely new one. But this is best to understand that this present physical world will be shaken and purged as to be renewed and glorified in the new age of Christ's return. Jesus himself refers to the new world as the regeneration or the renewal, as Matthew 19 uh, verse 28 says. Paul spoke of the undoing of the world and its redemption in Romans 8.23 when the creation itself will be set free from its bondage of corruption. The fact that the earth itself must be undone reminds us that the the gravity of sin in all of its forms. When Cain murdered Abel, God cursed him, saying, The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. So does every sin find a witness in the earth to which is committed, above all the blood of Calvary, where God's own son was ridiculed, tortured, and slain. Therefore, if nothing else will persuade us from the horror of sin, the smashing of the world at the end of the age should prove to us how horrific in God's sight is the stain of every sin committed by man. I want you to think about that for a minute. I want to reread this for you. I want you to really ponder this. I want to go all the way back to the Cain and Abel story. The fact that earth itself must remind us that... The fact that the earth itself must be undone reminds us of the gravity of sin in all of its forms. When Cain murdered Abel, God cursed him, saying, The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. So does every sin find a witness in the earth on which it is committed. Above all, the blood of Calvary, where God's own son was ridiculed, tortured, and slain. Therefore, if nothing else will persuade us from the horror of sin The smashing of the world at the end of the age should provide us how horrific, should prove to us how horrific in God's holy sight is the stain of every sin committed by man. Think about that. That is just, that is the, that is the most incredible picture to be painted that at the end of it all, this world will be 
will be reborn, made anew, regenerated, and it will not have any of the stain of the old sin, but it takes the smashing of the world to signify and to demonstrate God's wrath against sin. Now, we know that Christ atoned for our sin, our sin is forgiven, but yet sin in the world still remains, and it has to be done away with. That is why the world will be smashed and made anew. And so this is what we will see at the end of the age. Now, the end of the gospel opportunity and the end of sin are included in this. So the end of sin is essentially this bold statement now that the world has been cleansed, smashed away. We no longer have to deal with the, the pressure of it. So together with the destruction of the worldly societies, this passage shows that Christ's return as bringing an end to sin. The only reason that God remembered Babylon is that God keeps a close record of all sin. The Old Testament represents countless examples of God's noting, recording, and remembering sin, as well as his obligation to punish it. And there's countless examples through the Old Testament. But in the end, sin itself must end. It must be brought to an end. Paul wrote that after ascending to heaven, Christ must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. In the catalytic end of the world, including the final judgment and its punishments, we shall see the end of sin and the creation made by God. No wonder the angels sing hallelujah for the Lord our God and the Almighty reigns. God judged the sin of Babylon by making her drain up the cup of wine in the fury of his wrath. This shows that our sins do not merely deviate from the owner's manual of life in some impersonal way, but rather give personal offense to the holy God who made us. God responds to sin with the fury of his wrath and shows the perfect justice by which God makes an end to sin. And with the end of sin comes the end of the gospel opportunity. Now we have seen this great events that will accompany uh, the return of Christ and brings an end to the world, this end of worldly society and the end of sin. And this brings the end of the gospel proclamation. There is no final chances. This is it. We have reached the end of the age. John's vision shows that even in the terrible judgment falls on the last day, Christ's enemies cursed God for this severe plague. This is a reaction to God's just punishment conforms their enemy, their enmity to God. As unrepentant enemies and sinners, they are smited to the ground with great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, which fell from heaven on them. Great hail attacks from heaven are a biblical symbol of wrathful judgment on the enemies of God, as Joshua 10 and Isaiah 28 note. Hailstorms of this colossal size would easily have had enough force to slay all those beneath them, utterly silencing the lips that curse God. The world dies in its sin, unwilling to repent. That is it. That is the gruesome reality to those who have rejected God and will continue to reject God. They will die cursing God. And the scripture tells us that. Now, we know that this is kind of a gruesome conclusion to the world 
But in reality, it's one of the most beautiful things that we can cultivate out of it because what we get is that God is still merciful and God is still loving in the to the other end of the spectrum here that he will continue to save people. He will continue to bring people into the folds of Christ. And so while we see that those who reject Christ, those who are unrepentant sinners will be punished and destroyed for their sin and the world will be punished and and smashed, those who are in Christ will be saved and they will be with him in eternity. That is the beautiful promise that comes out of all of this text here. And so we see that these bowls are are given to us throughout the church age. We've experienced many of them now, uh, as as many have in the past. We continue to experience them. The only ones we don't have yet are the sixth and seventh of each because they will continue to drive us towards that final moment when Christ will return. And so the church has continued to be persecuted and hated and the enemy of God continues to work against us and continues to persecute us and cause doubt and judgment upon us. But in the end, Christ is still the victor and he still is the king of all kings and he will return and destroy sin, end it, he will renew the world and he will call the faithful to him. And so to me, that is the most beautiful truth that we can get out of this particular portion of uh, scripture. Now we'll get into some, you know, interesting things as we get into um, the next handfuls of text as we get to chapter 17 and, and, and on. Uh, 17 is not a real long chapter, but we'll break it down into a couple parts more than likely. We'll probably look at 17 and 18 next week, but I'll kind of chat that up and see where we go with it. So this is where we are, and we'll conclude for the 16th chapter here today. As we have now looked at most of the book of Revelation, we only have a handful of chapters left and six episodes after today. So we're nearing the end, and the end will give us some great relief to move on to a new series, and I'm looking forward to that, but we've got a lot of things planned for Undying Light, and so I look forward to um, doing ministry and growing in Christ with each of you, and I look forward to hopefully getting to know more of you as you join us on Patreon and other platforms and share you know, your love for Christ and, and how, and hopefully that this podcast has helped you understand things better. I pray it does. And I hope that we get to have conversation for a long time going forward into the future as Undying Light is not going to be breaking or stopping or any of that sort. We continue to produce weekly content. So that is it. I'm going to go and do some homework and read some books and prep a sermon for the weekend. I've got a lot of ministry work to do yet this week, and uh, i got a bluegrass festival to go and enjoy. So, ladies and gentlemen, I pray that you guys are edified by the content, and I can't wait to hear from you all in the future. Until next time, God bless. We'll see you later.
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bolandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.